In our last episode with Jason Karlowish and Ken Langa, we discussed the approval of aducanumab by the FDA. And we got into some of the history surrounding medications to treat Alzheimer's disease in general that got us to where we are today. We're going to continue the discussion and now turn to what the approval of aducanumab might mean for state and federal governments, as well as older adults living with dementia, particularly when it comes to costs. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Mining Memory, a podcast devoted to exploring research on Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. We're joined today by Professor Nicholas Bagley. He is a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, where he teaches administrative law, regulatory theory, and health law. Professor Bagley previously worked in the U.S. Department of Justice and is a prolific writer. He's written extensively on issues related to the Affordable Care Act. His work has been published in the Harvard Law Review, the Columbia Law Review, the Georgetown Law Journal, and the New England Journal of Medicine, to name a few. He is also a regular contributor to The Atlantic. A fun fact about Professor Bagley is that before he became a lawyer, he taught eighth grade English in Teach for America. My partner, who is a middle school science teacher, will definitely appreciate that. In my opinion, if you can teach middle schoolers, you can do anything. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm really happy to be here. Recently, Nick co-authored an article with Rachel Socks that appeared in The Atlantic titled The Drug That Could Break American Healthcare. What an excellent title. The article discussed the approval of aducanumab and brings to light some potential downstream economic effects, as well as some of the legal slash policy issues in regard to how drugs get adopted here in the U.S. First, just to get something out of the way, Nick, what exactly does an administrative lawyer do? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, administrative lawyers are primarily uh, interested in the ways that uh, administrative agencies, so like the FDA or the EPA, carry out their responsibilities, what law governs, what they can do, how do the courts think about um, overseeing the work of agencies? Um, how do we make sure that agencies can do their jobs on the one hand, but protect individual rights on the other, uh, and make sure that they follow the, the law as written as opposed to kind of what they'd most prefer to do? So that's kind of the, the, the meat and potatoes of what administrative lawyers do. We study agencies. How did you find your, your way into sort of health-related issues? You know, it's a, one of those long and convoluted stories. I didn't really intend ever to land here. When I took a job with uh, the University of Michigan, I explained to the folk who were on the hiring committee that I was pretty interested in healthcare because it seemed to me like we had a couple of very big federal agencies, you know, the institutions that run Medicare and Medicaid, um, that administrative lawyers, for a variety of reasons, didn't do a whole lot of writing about. And so I thought there was like a an opportunity to marry my interest in administrative law with you know, a, a, a nascent interest in healthcare. Um, so when I got to University of Michigan, they gave me the offer and they said, great, you're teaching health law. And I thought, well, I should probably learn something about it then. And, uh, you know, I, I taught the class and uh, at right around that same time, the Affordable Care Act had been adopted in 2010 and it was starting to be implemented by the Obama administration. And a lot of um, its implementation choices raised legal questions. And some of those legal questions were straight up admin law questions. And it turned out I had a little bit of expertise that I could offer. So I started writing publicly about it. I focused a lot of my academic work on the question. And, you know, it sort of snowballed from there. We've got 
plenty of problems in healthcare. So I think we'll keep you busy for a long <laughs> There's time. Infinite work. I tell my students that if they if they if they ever just want to have like consistent regular work, look to healthcare. What exciting times in healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we uh, shift to the talk of topic of Educanumab, which now has been around long enough, I can kind of say it. Um, can you walk us through the sort of steps in your article where you kind of outline what the cost implications are sort of from the patient, individual patient level, all the way up to, let's say, like the federal government and the stops yeah. in between? Yeah, I'm happy to do it. So um, the first and most important thing to notice about the drug is that it is of course, for a patient population that is overwhelmingly over the age of 65. And in the United States, that means that Medicare and to a lesser extent, Medicaid are the payers that are going to be on the hook for paying the $56,000 a year uh, prescription cost. Um, and the most important sort of thing to notice right about the gate, what that means is that is that taxpayers are really bearing the burden of paying for this drug. Um, mostly the costs are going to be borne by all of us. And we're going to either have to pay for that either by, you know, increasing the amount we pay in taxes or by taking on more debt than we otherwise would, which of course is a bill that will eventually come due. Um, but the effects aren't just for the taxpayer. Um, the effects for individual seniors can are a little more complicated, but, but that actually can be quite, quite tough as well. Um, Medicare you know, it's vaunted as great insurance, but it turns out it's pretty patchy in important respects. Um, the most important way in which it's patchy is that under Medicare Part B, which is what what's going to pay for this drug, um, you're responsible for covering 20% of the coinsurance costs. And that's just a fancy way of saying that you're on the hook for one fifth of all spending that you incur under Medicare Part B. Now, most people don't see that because they've got employer wraparound coverage or a Medigap plan. But some people don't have plans like that. And, and for those people who actually just have to pay that cost out of pocket, you know, aducanumab is going to cost them more than $10,000 a year, more than $11,000 a year. And that's on top of all the costs that might be associated with the additional screenings that you're going to need to undergo in order to make sure we can identify side effects when they crop up. Um, Part B premiums partly reflect the costs of care. So those are going to go up as a result of aducanumab, probably not much for any given individual. But, you know, when you're living on a fixed budget, you know, like every little bit can be a bit of a burden. Um, beyond that, Medicaid programs are kind of the, the payers that step in when um, people are Medicare eligible, but they don't have enough money to cover, say, the coinsurance costs. So Medicaid, of course, is a state federal a joint state federal program where states bear a lot of the costs. And for people who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, well, it's the states that are going to have to pick up some of the costs of covering the new drug. Um, and although the state's costs are going to be a lot lower than the federal government's costs, they're really a secondary payer in this context. Um, states have real problems budgeting for this kind of thing because they can't deficit spend. And that means that state budgets are going to be squeezed and they really don't have much of a choice except to raise taxes or to cut spending elsewhere. Um, they can't take on debt. And that means that, that like we saw for the approval of the hepatitis C drugs a bunch of years ago, um, state budgets are going to be really, you know, kind of, they're going to put policymakers into a bit of a bind. And we're going to likely see, you know, decreases in state spending associated with increases on this, this new drug, even though, of course, we don't have good evidence that it works, much less that it's worth spending all this money on. Can you, this is a tiny bit of a digression, but 
How is it that this is covered through Part B instead of Part D? Yeah, it's a great question. No. So Part D was added in 2003, right? And that's mainly to cover prescription drugs for people who are Medicare eligible. So if you're getting your statins, you go to the drugstore, you pick them up there, and Medicare Part D pays for those. And the way it works is you buy a prescription drug plan, and the prescription drug plan negotiates for the best prices it can get for the Medicare Part D kind of drug that you might get at the pharmacy. Part B drugs are those that are administered in um, basically a clinic usually, right? So they're actually administered in an institutional setting. They're not administered at home. And when you have a drug like that, and you think of like chemotherapy drugs fit into this category, they're a big spending, um, part of Part B spending. Um, This is actually, it's an infusion drug. You're going to get it done at a clinic. You're not going to do it at your house. And therefore it's covered under Part B. Um, that matters in part because you can't, there's, there's no mechanism for negotiating prices under Medicare Part B. Um, Medicare is just a payer. It pays pretty much whatever the pharma companies demand. Um, and the normal ways that you might get some price discipline when it comes to a prescription drug, um, whether that's under Part D or Part B, is through negotiation. You know, you, you have a health insurance company that says, I'm not going to cover your drug unless you cut the price. Well, Medicare can't do that. It's prohibited by law from doing that. And that means this $56,000 price is going to come due whenever a physician prescribes this drug. It, it's also not just the 56000 right? There's other indirect spending. Due and, and that is, it's, it's a lot of indirect spending because you're going to have to go get a couple of MRIs every year at least. Um, you might need to get PET scans in order to see if you've got amyloid, although that's in a bit of... Um, a limbo state at the moment because Medicare, at least right now, says it won't pay for PET scans connected with Alzheimer's. That may change. Um, you know, not to mention just the doctor's visits and the follow-up and all the other indirect costs associated with it. It's going to be a lot more than $56,000 a year per, per patient. And that's to monitor. So you're monitoring all the, all the potential side effects and the treatments? For those side effects. Yeah. I mean, a shocking number of people develop side effects on this drug. You guys know this better than I do, but it's quite... You know, most of them don't end up having, you know, very serious adverse consequences, but some of them do. Uh, so in your article, you you make some striking cost estimates for the country. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the tricky things is, is trying to figure out what the patient population is here. And, you know, like Alzheimer's is, is and again, you guys know this better than I do, um, but it's a big patient population. We estimate about 6 million people in the country have Alzheimer's. If like a third of people were to get uh, prescribed the drug, you're talking about direct costs in excess of $112 billion a year. Okay, to put that figure in perspective, um, in 2020, Medicare spent about $90 billion on all of its Part D drugs. So you'd be spending more on a single drug than we spend on all prescription medications for all seniors across the entire country by a lot. Some of which actually work. Some of which actually work. Now, now the folk who've looked closely at the market think it's unlikely it's going to be that big. You know, the estimates I've heard are something on the order of $26 billion a year. Um, But that's still more than, I, I want to get this exactly right, but I'm pretty sure that's more than, or at least very comparable to the full amount that we currently spend on all other part B drugs some of which, of course, do actually work. So these are, these are eye-popping numbers for a single drug, and, it, and especially eye-popping because we've got crap evidence that it does anything. One of the things that you point out in your article is, I mean, it's obvious 
to me to some degree, but the way you you pointed it out so well in your article was sort of sort of this disconnect between the process here in America where we evaluate how well a drug works through the FDA. And then it kind of finds its way into being adopted into insurance plans and those types of things. But we don't ever really, when we're evaluating these drugs, really consider the cost of society. And that was kind of interesting. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So <clears throat> you want to separate out two questions, right? FDA reviews drugs to ask whether they're safe and effective for their intended use. And that's a useful question to ask as a gating decision for deciding whether or not you want a, a drug to be available on the market. You know, if it's not not effective, we don't want people wasting their money on it. If it's not safe, we certainly don't want it to be sold. But FDA doesn't actually take costs into account. And, and you know, like when drugs weren't that expensive 30, 40, 50 years ago, that made a lot of sense, right? Like safe and effective and let the market work it out. Well, the market doesn't work very well in healthcare for all sorts of reasons, but it doesn't work at all when it comes to Medicare, which is a public program. And back in 1965, when we adopted Medicare, there was a kind of a deal with the medical establishment that was cut that said, basically, look, we're going to pay for healthcare, but we're not going to place any constraints on what doctors do. And the reason for this is, you know, pretty straightforward, which is patients and doctors alike don't really like the federal government telling them what to do or interfering in the practice of medicine. If there's a good therapy that is widely accepted in the medical community or even accepted by a minority of the medical community. Well, that's up to the medical community. It's not up to the federal government to decide. And so Medicare is just going to be a passive payer. Um, and that passivity, again, makes sense when you're not spending a lot on healthcare, but it it's much more of a problem when you start getting into tough value propositions like, like this new drug, right? Where you might want to say, look, the drug is safe and effective in the sense that we know it's safe-ish and we know it yeah, might, might work. Um, but it's not been shown to be good value for at $56,000 a year, right? Maybe you'd spend a couple of bucks on it. Maybe you'd say, well, why the hell not? You know, like Alzheimer's really is truly terrible. Maybe you'd spend even a couple of thousand dollars on it. Um, but $56,000 for every single person who's prescribed the drug seems wildly out of proportion, given the good evidence that it doesn't do much, even if it does have some marginal effect. Um, the way we describe it in the article is to say that, that in the United States, our decisions about drug approval and our decisions about how to pay for drugs are linked. Like they're kind of treated as if they were one and the same, but they don't need to be, and they really shouldn't be. In most countries, the drug approval decision is kept separate from the choice about how much to pay for that drug. And that's a much more sensible approach. You can ask questions about value that are, are you know, a different question than whether the drug is just safe and effective. So is it guaranteed that this drug will eventually, I mean, where it, where it is right now in the process and where people can start prescribing it in Medicare, where are we at in terms of the timeline? Yeah. So it's been approved by the FDA and Medicare has to make a determination about exactly what it's going to pay for. Um, and that payment decision is one that's rapid. They, they've instituted a process called a national coverage determination. These are pretty rare um, administrative processes that Medicare uses for certain very controversial or high profile uh, interventions. And what it does is say, look, like we want input and thoughts about whether or not we as Medicare, as a payer, ought to pay for this particular intervention. Usually it's for treatments. So they'll do a national coverage determination on um, getting a colonoscopy. Like how often, like which of these colonoscopies are we going to pay for? Urologists can be a little gun, you know, 
trigger happy when it comes to scheduling colonoscopies, right? Because they're procedures, you get paid every time. Maybe we should introduce some price price restraints in here by saying, hey, if it's a repeat colonoscopy within a decade of getting a clear one, we're not going to cover that, right? That's the kind of thing that national coverage determination would normally do. As to Adahelm, Medicare is going to have to decide whether or not it wants to restrict access to the drug to particular patient populations or to people with, you know, um, certain kinds of uh, biomarkers associated with early stage Alzheimer's or, or whatever, you know, part of the challenge here is figuring out, you know, if we are going to cover this drug at all, what's the right patient population for that. Um, And it's a little tricky because the theory of the drug's operation is that it targets amyloid, which of course exists both early in the course of Alzheimer's and also late in the course of Alzheimer's. And so if you take the mechanism of, of, if you think that getting rid of amyloid is likely to cause some kind of cognitive improvement, at least in theory, it's plausibly the kind of drug you could prescribe throughout a patient's life, the, the life cycle for, um, for Alzheimer's. FDA, after it initially approved uh, the drug for all Alzheimer's patients, issued a renewed label that included this very strange squirrely language about how it should only be, not that it couldn't be, but that it should only be prescribed to people with early stage Alzheimer's. And so there's some reason to think that maybe Medicare will only pay for it uh, if it falls within that, you, you can fit within that category. How exactly you define early stage Alzheimer's um, is not entirely clear to me, and maybe Medicare is going to figure out some way of doing that. Um, I also think it's important to notice that as soon as you say we're going to pay for early stage Alzheimer's, there's going to be a real incentive for clinicians to find a lot of people with early stage Alzheimer's. So you know, this isn't a fixed population where, you know, you, you just have a scarlet A on your forehead. It's a population where, you know, the clinical signs are elusive, where not always clear who's got it, it, it you know, and there's going to be some effort to market to people to get them to lean on their doctors to prescribe this drug. So it goes back to that question about what's the size of the patient population here. I think everybody's guessing. So if we can touch on that just a minute, the idea of incentives for the clinicians here. So if I write a prescription for citalopram, I don't receive any sort of cut on the top of that. The way uh, this um, medication is paid for, however, that's not the case. Can you explain that just a little bit, the incentives there? Yeah, it's... (laughs) This is one of the hardest things to explain only because it sounds so preposterous that it couldn't possibly be true, but it is true. Um, Under Part B, um, physicians are reimbursed 6% of the average sales price of a drug that they prescribe. Um, So every chemotherapy drug that's prescribed under Part B, you're getting a 6% cut. Now, clinicians often don't see that directly. Often it's their practice group that takes in that money and then it's distributed out. And so you'll hear clinicians say, oh, I don't get paid like that. But that's in fact just not true. Like when you do the billing, you are getting paid for that. And of course, your your physician group is going to have incentives to make sure that clinicians are doing their utmost to maximize that 6%. I mean, let's call it what it is. It's a kickback. Um, that encourages clinicians to prescribe more expensive medications. Now, not all clinicians fall prey to that incentive. Many will still prescribe drugs that are older and off patent that are, you know, proven and effective. Um, But nonetheless, the incentives push that direction. And for every principal doctor out there who's saying, you know, hey, I'm going to push back and I'm going to do, you know, sort of go with uh, older, cheaper, tried and true medications. There are a bunch of others that are perfectly happy to open up 
you know, aducanumab clinics that are, you know, specifically designed to get people onto this drug that they persuade themselves is going to help them. Um, and if a physician is getting a 6% kickback on $56,000, it means every, every time you prescribe this drug, every time you're getting paid that $3,360. That's a big incentive, especially if you can pull, you know, 10 patients through a day and pull down an extra 30 K then just multiply that over the course of the year. It's, it's, um, a really toxic set of incentives for clinicians. And so the cost for Medicare, in addition to paying for MRIs and maybe PET scans and all the other stuff, is this additional 6% on top of the 56000 right? The additional 6% on top of the fifty six. They call it a stocking fee. The idea is that it's you know costs you something to keep these drugs in stock. Um, I, I, I was going to ask, has, has that always been a part of part B and is the idea it's sort of, you know, this has to be delivered in an infusion center. So you're kind of helping pay for the costs of running the infrastructure of this yeah, place. Is that the idea? That's the justification for it. It's been in place for a very long time, I think since the beginning, but I'd have to go back and double check to be sure. Um, it's been the target over both the Obama and the Trump administrations of some efforts to make changes, because I think everybody realizes that a 6% kickback keyed to the drug's price is a really bad way to set up incentives, right? You don't want clinicians making choices to prescribe that are informed by which drug is most expensive. You want them to be asking which drug is most effective. And sometimes that'll be the more expensive drug, but often it won't be. Um, but as soon as um, you know the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services start sort of moving in the direction of maybe trying to get at this 6% um, kickback, uh, oncologists in particular, but clinicians in general, mobilize to defeat it. Um, they don't want that, that, um, they don't want that particular gravy train to stop. And it's an understandable set of incentives, um, but it is, I think, quite toxic. And thinking about and reading your article and other articles that have been coming out, it's Strikes me as sort of surprising in a country where, you know, politically there's a whole party largely devoted to to controlling government spending and taxation and focused on a lot of things around that over the years, how something like this could kind of sneak its way through and with major cost implications and kind of go unnoticed. It just strikes me as kind of an interesting phenomenon here in the country. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to notice the way that rhetoric and practice diverge. So I think it's fair to say that Republicans as a party have been um, pretty zealous about trying to reduce tax burdens on, on people. I think that's, that's absolutely true. And they talk a big game when it comes to controlling entitlement spending, right? And, like, and, and at times have really made that a centerpiece of their public messaging. Um, but the fact of the matter is that when push comes to shove, it's rarely in a politician's uh, self-interest to make targeted cuts that come out of the flesh of people who are well organized in their districts. So, you know, if you're a member of Congress, you have a big hospital in your district, right? You might have a couple of big hospitals in your district. And whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, some of your biggest supporters are likely to be doctors. And they're going to tell you how if you make this change, they're no longer going to be able to maintain their practices. And of course, it's true. I mean, like if you built your practice on the back of a certain set of payment structures and you change those structures, you're going to have to change your practice, right? Like that's actually kind of the point. We want you to change your practice because what you're doing is, is wasteful. Um, but people really don't like change and disruption and they really don't like losing money. And so, 
you know, like the diffuse costs, the federal budget over time of this kind of insane payment approach, um, they just get overlooked. You know, they're just not a priority. It always seems like healthcare is off the table when it comes to spending. Rationing, rationing. Yeah, I mean, you can't. I, I want to, you want to be a little careful because there have been efforts. You know, for example, um, you know, clinicians are familiar with diagnostic related groups, right? So, when you have you go in for for somebody comes in for a hospital stay, you, you don't get paid as a hospital for every intervention you do. You get paid for the condition that the person presents with, and that means that there's kind of a fixed amount of money on the table for the hospital, and that gives a hospital an incentive to say to clinicians, "Hey, don't do more than you need to. Like just." get the person fixed. But like, if you spend more, we don't make more, you should spend less. And that had dramatic effects on lengths of patient stay on the intensity of care provided in the hospital setting. Not that change in Medicare was only adopted in 1983. And it was adopted under a Republican president. And I think most people think that that's the kind of cost conscious decision that Medicare really needs. So there have been efforts to cut back on Medicare spending from time to time. Um, but by and large, with that one exception, they've been pretty ineffective. And part of the question is like, how long can we keep the party going this way? I mean, one of the things that's been quite striking to me about the debate over aducanumab is how muted the congressional response has been. You know, I think health policy experts to a person from, you know, the pinko lefties to the, the libertarian righties are appalled uh, at what's happened, both the FDA's approval decision, but then also the implications for the federal budget. Um, and you'd think that Congress would be pretty happy to take this on because, gosh, they've been fighting a fight against pharma companies, or at least rhetorically fighting that fight for some years now. Both Republicans and Democrats think we got to do something. Um, but what you've heard is pretty much deafening silence. I think people are really, they don't want to tell Alzheimer's patients and their families that what what FDA kind of in a half-baked way, but what FDA says might be effective is is not going to be available to them. They don't want to be the you don't you don't win points for running against people with dementia. Do you have any thoughts about how to improve the process? Yeah, so uh, I, I think we need to introduce some consideration of value into how we pay for drugs in this country. Um, and as soon as you say that, you're going to get people out there saying, you know, rationing, or you're going to deny people life-saving therapies, and that's not at all what I'm saying. So I think it's important to, to take a step back and realize what, what, I, what I am saying, which is there are a lot of drugs out there that confer sizable benefits on people, and we should pay through the nose for those drugs. So when Sovaldi came out to treat hepatitis C, it was priced at $84,000 right out of the gate. And the health policy community, I'm sorry, the, the broader kind of public went kind of nuts and Congress launched investigations and, and, and went after Gilead for pricing its drugs so aggressively. Um, my view was always, you know, it's a cure. It's a cure to a terrible disease that afflicts those on the margins of society where we can actually make an enormous difference and get rid of it in one go. Like, $84,000 is a lot. And it, and it probably was a little aggressive given the value of the drug. But like, you know, sometimes you got to pay a lot to get nice things. And so you get a great drug out there on the market. We should pay for it. We should pay a lot for it. We should be happy about paying a lot for it. Um, what I worry about is that we now have a lot of incentives in the system to create ineffective drugs or marginally more effective drugs that are wildly more expensive. And that doesn't make any sense. Why would you pay 10 or 100 times as much for a drug 
that offers a 0.5% benefit or a benefit in a tiny slice of individuals, but is nonetheless prescribed more more widely. Um, And it's those drugs where I think you can start to ask questions about value and push back. Now, there are all sorts of hard questions that get kicked up whenever you try to pay, you talk about paying for value, right? Like it's not an easy thing to put a price on a drug and you're always going to be operating in under some uncertainty because clinical trials aren't, aren't perfect and information is always partial. Um, but we could do a lot better than we are, even if we were pretty generous and we'd encourage the right kind of innovation instead of encouraging pharma companies to come up with the next me too drug the next drug that's just a little bit better than the last chemotherapy medication, the one that lets people with lung cancer live three days longer. Instead of that, we'd actually encourage them to start looking for the kinds of therapies that really could be transformative for people. Um, that's what I'd like to see. I feel like you need some kind of new measure that's some kind of cost per population benefit ratio or something. Well, I mean, and, and they have these, right? I mean, like they have, it, you know, the people make calculations based on the quality adjusted life years that a drug can provide. They compare that to um, the amount that it costs. Um, ICER, the Institute for Cost Effectiveness Research, um, it has been at the forefront of trying to show how this kind of value proposition can work. Um, I'm on one of its advisory boards for the Midwest. And, and you know, routinely look at the kind of evidence that people who are going to make these value determinations would look at. And, you know, sometimes there are really hard questions. There's no question about it. Um, But we're so far from the optimal situation right now that even marginal improvements could make a big difference. So if you uh, look into your crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen with Agihelm? Is it just going to, you know, our state budget's going to be exploding across the country or what's going to happen? Well, I think probably, uh, look, uh, the path of least resistance here is just to pay for the drug, right? That's what individual patients are going to want. It's what clinicians are going to want. Um, the people who are harmed by the proliferation of this drug are, are really going to be the taxpayers who are forced to bear the burden. And to be honest, like it's going to be a marginal amount on any given one, any given person's tax bill. It's probably not going to motivate people to get out there and vote and to really raise raise hell in, in Washington. And so I think politicians are largely going to look the other way as well. I wish I could say that we'd have a different outcome, and and we still could, right? Um, but I, w- I have been surprised at how much of the horror at what we're about to witness has been limited to the folks who are sort of, they research this, they think a lot about it, they're kind of deep in the weeds of of the trade-offs, but it hasn't been shared by the broader community, uh, political community. It's been a pretty niche issue. Um, And, you know, generally speaking, when it's a bunch of pointy-headed, you know, experts going up against the, you know, broad public demand, the pointy-headed experts are going to lose. Yeah. You wonder too, a little bit with just everything going on in the world you know, if this just, there's too much bandwidth being consumed by everything else going on, that this is not even, not even a priority. Yeah. I mean, it's partly, it's happening during a time of, of high, of a lot of free spending, right. In the sense that there are, you know, massive bills going through to spend on coronavirus relief, potentially on infrastructure. Um, Budget discipline seems to be something that, that certainly the Democrats don't care about and Republicans don't have any credibility on after they passed enormous tax bill under an enormous tax bill under Donald Trump and blew up the deficit. So 
you know, it's a country right now where we're quite comfortable with extraordinary amounts of spending without any kind of offset or, you know, serious concern for what might happen to the federal budget and the deficit down the line. Um, You know, eventually gravity is going to reassert itself, but I'm, I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic here. My, the best case scenario, I think right now, is that Medicare creates a fairly stringent set of clinical guidelines around when it will, for, for a stringent set of guidelines for when it's going to pay for uh, the drug. Were it to do that, that could mitigate enthusiasm to prescribe it. Um, and, you know, it's possible too that that actual practitioners, right? Actual clinicians will push back. And we've seen this actually in the past week or two, right? Some optimism because we've seen Mount Sinai and Cleveland Clinic and Mayo, you know, real leaders in this space saying, we think this is a bad choice for our patients. Um, I'm not willing to say that clinicians across the board are going to get on, you know, fall into line. Uh, I think that may just provide a business opportunity for people who are not affiliated with those institutions, to open up their own clinics. Um, but, you know, if enough clinicians say that the risk profile of these drugs is just too serious, um, that could really affect prescribing patterns. And maybe the fiscal bomb won't be as large as as some of us fear. I was wondering about the side effects scaring people off, but in a for a condition like dementia, they're probably so desperate, it probably won't, right? I mean, it's hard to know, but if if you are, you know... Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, anything you can find that might help a long sum margin, you'd be willing to run lots of risks. You know, I think that's, you know, the thing that (laughs) what health policy people, you know, when you when you're behind closed doors, and you're talking about the things that really keep people up at night. um, I remember having these conversations, it was about an Alzheimer's drug that worked. Right? Like, because there are so many people with Alzheimer's, if you have a drug that's effective, and it's worth spending, $56,000 $56,000 a year on, um, that itself would be an enormous budget buster. You're talking about potentially hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And that's a problem even if the drug works. And so you have to ask hard questions about you know, whether we can collectively afford to pay for a drug that would be individually effective. And that raises a whole set of really difficult ethical questions. Um, in some sense, the aducanumab saga is much simpler because the drug doesn't appear to work, or if it does work, it's of such marginal effectiveness that there's no possible way to justify the $56,000 price. Um, But, you know, telling people that they shouldn't take a drug because of its risk profile when they're facing dementia, that's a hard sell. You know, I wish I could be more um, optimistic about what I thought the outcome would be here. My hope would be ideally that this would be a moment where we could pause, take a step back and create a new system for thinking about how we pay for drugs in this country. One that would create, I think, better incentives for smarter innovation and would stop us from a bunch of wasteful spending. Um, But it doesn't look like the country is prepared to have that conversation yet. And to be honest, I keep waiting and wondering, and maybe the answer is we won't, not at least for the next couple of decades. Last question. Would you be able to help us secure office space at the law school? <laughs> for what? I mean, right, for listeners not familiar with the University of Michigan, I've always thought that the law campus is the oh, most beautiful. beautiful spot in yeah. Ann Arbor. And it's a place where everybody takes their photographs for graduation. Yeah, I think you need to come up with a better pitch than it's really quite beautiful. But if you could, <laughs> um, and then, then certainly I'd be happy to put in a good word. It is a lovely space to work. Nick, it's been great having you on. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you who listened in. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. 
you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.